Hello, welcome back to Tabu. My name's Katrina. Uh, today I'm joined by Mother Pam Jordi and Georgina Easton. Could I ask you guys to introduce yourselves, Mother? Hi, I'm Mother. I am the COO and one of the lawyers at Tab. Um, I am also part of the senior management team. Hi, I'm Georgina Eason, a partner, licensed insolvency practitioner and qualified fixed charge receiver at MHA McIntyre Hudson. Uh, today's podcast is going to be on receivership and restructuring and insolvency and all that fun stuff that happens. <laughs> if we kick things <laughs> off with uh, question number one, which is what is a fixed charge receiver? Okay, well, quite simply, um, where a lender has a charge such as a mortgage over property um, or other assets, it can be a, a variety of assets, they have the power to appoint a receiver if that charge allows them to do so. Um, and then once appointed as a receiver, I'll take control of that asset, whether it's property, a boat, something far more fancy and interesting, and try and effectively sell it for, um, to realise the asset and funds obviously to go towards paying the charge holder. And... I guess what is the role? So, your role as a receiver, are you are you the receiver? I am. <laughs> and your role is to take the asset, sell it by any means possible, and then give the money back to the lender. Yep. In in theory, in short, can I act as a receiver? You could do actually. <laughs> well, Surprisingly, <laughs> enough. Uh, you may not want to. Um, so, in terms of who can be a receiver, it's an individual, so not a body corporate. You'll usually find it will be an estate agent, surveyor, or insolvency practitioner. Um, so, I'm a, a qualified fixed charge receiver. Again, you don't have to be qualified. I did sit an exam because, stupidly, I just love exams. <laughs> and I think, really, if you're going to take on the role, you should know everything that it encompasses. Um, so, uh, yes, broadly it can be you if, if you chose to do so. But I'm also a, a member of NARA, so that's the um, Association of Receivers in the UK. So I'm subject to sort of best practice guidelines, mm -hmm. um, compliance, you know, reviews, things like that. So quite often the lenders that I work for appreciate that because it shows that I have some kind of governance because receivers as a whole aren't regulated. Ah, and so maybe this is just, how does it compare to a bailiff? <laughs> Every, all of my friends, I mean, if you sit, you know, when you sit around a dinner table and, and your friends say, oh, you know, what do you do? Or a friend of a friend, yeah. what do you do? And I say, I'm an insolvency practitioner. The first thing they say is consultancy practitioner. <laughs> and then when I go on to explain what an IP is and then say I'm also a fixed charge receiver, oh, what one of those bailiffs that just goes in, sells property, <laughs> I'm sorry to have asked the rocks into, well. <laughs> yeah. So no, I'm not a bailiff, So, but we do use bailiffs. So where we would typically use a bailiff and the difference is, so if I'm appointed receiver, let's say over a residential property, a buy-to-let property, for example, and there's tenants within the property, I need to get possession order to evict the tenants and we will then instruct uh, what they're called now, a high, high court enforcement officer yeah. to go in and effectively evict the tenant on behalf of us, um, you know, in accordance with the order that's made by the court. So they effectively will be the ones that turn up at the property, assist us with the eviction. And then at the same time, we'll have locksmiths um, and various, you know, estate agents, mm -hmm. etc. There, someone from our team, potentially, depending on uh, whether it's uh, going to be a friendly eviction <laughs> or not, if, you, if there is such a thing. Um, and so they assist in that process. So, yeah, we're, we're very different roles. <laughs> I don't want to be a bailiff, but um, appreciate the need for them. Are there, yeah? I was going to say, how long are possession orders taking at the moment? Because I know there was a backlog. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so with the, the pandemic, um, in terms of possession, they were all sort of suspended for a period. So even those that were partway through, certainly we weren't allowed to enforce and actually go for possession. So that was for, for quite some time, obviously frustrating. Um, some orders have actually taken sort of two years to come through where we've oh. had to reactivate. And obviously you can imagine being a lender, the amount of interest that's, um, you know, sort of been compounded in that period. Now we're uh, back down to sort of a few months in terms of getting hearings listed. Obviously courts close over the summer. So again, we fall into that and evictions and enforcement we don't usually like to do around the Christmas period. So now we are looking at a lot of hearings won't be listed for uh, until next year. But yeah, usually around 12 weeks to to list and then obviously yeah. if they're disputed and you know hearings are adjourned it can be quite protracted um but yeah taking possession is kind of a worst case <laughs> scenario for us but you know it's a means to an end so going on to question two is what is the role of a receiver in property finance yep. um yeah i mean yeah so if i'm appointed specifically over a property as opposed to any other asset um, the first step really is to for the lender to serve the demand. So the borrower is obviously aware that they have either defaulted or haven't met the terms um, that the lender would like. Prior to that, there's probably been a lot of negotiation between the lender and the borrower. So I usually step in one if the borrower is just out of options mm -hmm. um, or it's been dragging on for quite some time or indeed the relationship between a borrower and a lender is broken down. Uh, so the demand will be served. They'll be well aware then of, of the amount that's required to repay to stop any enforcement action being taken. If it's not repaid, then I'm, um, I'll sign a deed of appointment. I'll be appointed. And then in terms of duties and obligations, the first step is to insure the property or review any insurance mm -hmm. that we're aware that's in place, make sure it's sufficient. So obviously if it burns down, the security for the lender isn't lost um, and we can recover the money that way. Uh, secure the property so again if it's a one a, a appointment I was looking at yesterday it's student halls but the agent went down there they're actually empty so we'll change the locks straight away secure any broken windows mm -hmm. so again just to ensure that those first two steps secure and ensure make sure the asset is is there and going to be in the best you know possible place in terms of us getting in realizing the asset mm -hmm. and getting back the money quickly then we'll get valuations of the property depending on the property type or depend on which agent we use. I don't just use one. Some receivers are agents as well, so they tend to use themselves. <laughs> I think the benefit of not being an estate agent receiver is the fact that I'll use and, and look to a variety of, of different um, agents. Sometimes the lender will have a panel of agents. Sometimes it's down to me. So the lender could, in that scenario, say we use John from down the road. Yep. You can use him. And then would you be as kind of the client from the lender, would you be obliged to use that agent or would you kind of say, actually, we recommend using these guys because they're particularly good at valuing? Yeah, pools? I mean, <laughs> certainly what we would do is have a conversation with the recommended agent and, you know, if they've got the appropriate expertise and, you know, I get appointed on property up and down the country. <laughs> so location's quite key. You know, if they were suggesting a London agent and my property is in Liverpool, I might suggest that we also chat to one that's got local presence yeah. just because I have much more f a feel for the market and, you know, should be able to get that enhanced return. But quite often when I work with lenders, um, you know, it will be, we'll go out to, to two or three mm -hmm. um, and even partway through the appointment, you know, if, if an agent isn't performing, then we'll look to change it. But it will always be done in conjunction with the lender. But lenders, you know, when they appoint receivers, the receivers are there to do the job. 
not the lender telling the receiver what to do. And that's quite key for a lender because if they step over that kind of boundary, then if, if something goes wrong, they can be held accountable. And the whole point of appointing <laughs> me and paying me is so that that doesn't happen. I get all the risk and liability and everything else. So, yeah, I guess in short, we'll work with them, have a chat with the agents and then suggest others yeah. on top. And then once you've got valuations, next step is sell? Yeah, so in terms of um, the agents, depending on, so I, I mean, I'll get appointed on a broad range of stuff. So it might be a part built property development. Um, it might, you know, with work going on or work mm -hmm. ceased. So still some, you know, cost to complete and things like that, which can be quite an involved process. Obviously, if we're looking at that independently, if it's a, you know, an empty property, which is kind of low value, um, which isn't very attractive, we might look to auction it. Um, there might be, you know, change of use, which might enhance value. Whilst we don't have to do that, sometimes it might be appropriate if the lender's got shortfall mm -hmm. um, and are looking to potentially, you know, enhance that to get a return. Um, we'll look at that. So we'll basically do an estimated outcome and look at various options um, and suggest it to the lender. And then it's it's down to them to, to agree with us. What's the most kind of interesting type of security that you've been instructed on? Um... <laughs> interesting uh well difficult is shares so you know i think they're quite quite, quite complex property i much prefer because you know in the main even if it's land you can go and see it you can walk around it you can touch it so any kind of um you know property based asset is fine in in terms of interesting in property related stuff I've had some weird, wonderful. <laughs> I've I've had um, property, um, property actually in near Brixton, um, and a Grade Two listed building. So at that point, if you've got something listed, the whole world's interested in it. You know, <laughs> local councils and all sorts of things. And um, it was being inhabited by some squatters. Oh no! And then does who were very friendly. <laughs> they uh, used to invite me to their barbecues. Oh, um, <laughs> they're really trying to get me on site. Um, yeah, invited me to bicycle repair workshops and all sorts of things. But the problem did you ever go? No, I didn't. <laughs> funny enough, no. I used to get them on a Sunday afternoon and was always busy. But um, I mean, that was really interesting for us and quite quite difficult. I mean, they were using um, electricity supplies from local uh, premises down the road, obviously illegally. Mm. You had children in there, animals, and it wasn't particularly safe because it wasn't meant to be mm -hmm. inhabited. So it did end up in, in court proceedings and they, they turned out in force. And <laughs> I mean, they're very intelligent. I mean, you know, with um, illegal occupiers, I guess, as we should call them. Um, yeah, they, they certainly uh, say Would their piece, make my job more difficult. <laughs> with the property, I mean, just in that scenario, they were using electricity elsewhere. Would they have had to pay for it? As in, no. once you sell the property with the kind of owner of the property you've had to pick? Or is so it? we don't get involved in any of that because I guess that's one of the distinctions as well. So where I act as um, agent for the borrower, any, um, whether it's electricity, depending on, on, on what we're doing, but anything like that, any unsecured kind of debt that had been built up by, you know, legal occupiers kind of um, inhabiting a, a borrower's premises or whatever is, is not really down to me. So... Uh, I imagine, yeah, who, whoever, I, I, <laughs> who knows if they even knew about it or found out, you know, so, um, yeah. Um, I guess w you mentioned on when a loan, when mentioned earlier, when a loan went into default, the borrowers, you, the lender would then instruct you. For our listeners, what is going into default? 
I mean, in terms of default, it's kind of governed by the the terms of the loan, really. I mean, Mother is probably uh, yeah. I, I guess it's um, there's a facility agreement that goes out to the borrowers. It has covenants in there that they're supposed to adhere to during the term of the loan. For example, insuring um, during the term of the loan or paying back certain amounts of money, making capital reduction or obtaining planning. And if we come to know that that hasn't happened, we can call that an event of default. I mean, a more general one is when a loan has come to the end of the term and they haven't redeemed. Mm -hmm. That is a default. Um, and as George says, we try and speak to the borrowers. We try and figure out what's going on, give them some time if there's time. And then if, if negotiations do break down, then that's a default. And lawyers and the receivers get instructed to take over. And so let's say... We've instructed, they've gone into default, we've instructed you guys. How does the money, you've managed, you've got done all the boxes you need to do, you've sold the property. How is the money paid back in terms of to the lender? And then is it basically anything left over goes to the borrower or, yeah? Yeah, so in terms of um, the receivership, if it's a straightforward sale, as you say, so the sale proceeds will come in, then we'll have to look at the, the title because, you know, more often than not, I mean, sometimes I'll get instructed by a second charge holder, not only a first charge holder, as long as they've got the ability to appoint within their um, charge, then that's absolutely fine. So I might, um, you know, if you're being appointed by a second charge holder, you always have to have consent of the first um, well, you don't necessarily, <laughs> but usually you would. Um, and more often than not, you know, if the first charge holder is going to get paid out and not have to do anything and we'll just sit there and wait yeah. and don't have the complications of, of dealing with the borrower who might also be in default with them, then it's an advantageous position to be in. So we will check the office copy entries, obviously, in conjunction with our lawyers, and we will work out who needs what. So we'll get redemption statements from first, any other charge holders. Mm -hmm. Um, we'll ensure that all the costs of the receivership have been paid. So, as I said, so, you know, the insurers, the agents, mm -hmm. the lawyers, um, whoever else may have been involved, us, of course, yeah. you know, don't <laughs> do any, anything for free, sadly. Um, and then if there is a surplus, it will go back to the borrower. And in those surplus positions, we, I mean, we always have a duty of care towards the borrower and, you know, tenants and anyone mm -hmm. else that may be involved, despite the fact our primary duty is to the lender that's appointed us. Um, but where there's a surplus, we do have a, a higher level of, of duty of care in a way, because obviously if we're making decisions to sell, then it's going to affect what goes back to mm -hmm. them. So we can't just accept, you know, if, if a lender is owed £100,000, we, we don't just sell it for 100000 if it's owed 400000 yeah. because the, the borrower will then be 300000 less costs out of pocket. So we always have to achieve best price. And in those scenarios typically for me to ensure that there is no risk of challenge um we will get the borrower we don't have to but we'll get the borrower to consent yeah and more often than not if it's a reasonable sale that's being done and for whatever reason they haven't been able to refinance or sell it themselves they'll be happy with that and they'll just come on all the time <laughs> saying when am i going to get my money yeah back? um does that happen a lot where there is a bit of a surplus or it has done recently, to, to be honest, but yeah, it completely depends. I think with my appointment from bridging loan companies, typically there will be a surplus and they will always get out. I think that's because, you know, the, the difference in the LTV and also mm -hmm. they take action earlier. Um, I think with the typical sort of high street lenders or some of the alternative lenders that I act for, they tend to negotiate, 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 <laughs> interest racks up, mm -hmm. things get delayed. 
Um, and before you know it, property values have gone down and there's a shortfall scenario. So I guess, yeah, the, the key is to engage early and um, certainly that's where I will see the, yeah. the surplus. What position. happens when there is a shortfall? So when there's a shortfall, um, again, it depends on the setup with the lender. Um, a lot of lenders, like um, I'm sure you guys do, will take alternative security. So they may have security over another asset. They may have a personal guarantee. Um, so if they've got a personal guarantee, let's say that's the only other security they've got, um, then you know the lender may be advised by the lawyer to pursue the personal guarantee. Um, if that's not repayable, then again, with my IP hat on, I can hmm. assist in that sense because we can look to make that individual bankrupt. And if they're bankrupt, then that gives not only the lender, but all of the other borrowers, creditors access to whatever assets they have. Mm. So if they're made bankrupt and they, you know, they own properties in Spain and Ferraris and, you know, obviously in, a, in an ideal world <laughs> for creditors, then we, we get to realise all of it for the estate and the secured creditors will get paid and the unsecured creditors as well. Well, that moves moves the question nicely on to question number three, which is what is the difference between insolvency and receivership? Okay, so um, as an insolvency practitioner, I um, get involved with both personal and corporate appointments. So on the personal side, it's mainly bankruptcies. I don't do so many of the individual voluntary arrangements. Um, so bankruptcies, um, an unsecured creditor, which can include a shortfall um, that a lender will have after realising their security, mm -hmm. can petition to um, bankrupt an individual. So um, once they've done that, they can then um, nominate me to act as an insolvency practitioner, for example. There has to be a 50% majority of all of the unsecured creditors <laughs> to get my appointment. But um, So then once I'm in there, the duty then is to all of the bankrupt's creditors. I mean, that's the main difference and the fact that I get all of the assets. Mm -hmm. So it's dealing with all of the assets and all of the liabilities, not just the one liability to the secured lender and the one property they've got security over. It's the same really on the corporate side. Mm -hmm. So with if I've got administrations or liquidations, um, more often than not there, a lot of the appointments that I take are director-led, so board-led. So I will actually be appointed by um, you know the, the board as opposed to the lender. Sometimes it's the lender. Mm -hmm. Um, but then typically they're much more involved in the process. So, you know, they've come to realise themselves. Obviously, directors have duties when they're insolvent to take action um, and they'll look to, to get me appointed. But, yeah, the, it broadly, um, I'll have to do more investigation as well. So it's not just kind of physical or chattel assets that we recover. We'll look at, you know, if, <laughs> if, if you were made bankrupt and you'd, you know, sold your mum a car for £1,000 that's worth 100000 we'd be going after the 99,000 yeah. as a transaction and undervalue. So again, there's lots of different angles for us to kind of swell the pot in terms of recoveries for creditors. So it's a lot lot more involved, <laughs> can be more interesting. So how do you know when you've got so many different types of scenarios that you work on, how, how you've got lenders, you've got awards, you've got individuals. I mean, that's quite, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how, how do you, I guess... Um, well, actually, I'm going to go into that. What, uh, what's the best course of action? How do you determine? What in terms of best course of action, for us, it's obviously the best return to creditors. So if in an insolvency position, we will... So let's say we're looking at um, whether or not an arrangement should be agreed versus a bankruptcy on a, an individual. We'll produce an estimated outcome statement. So that will then give the creditors really the option. They're the ones to say, to mm -hmm. say you know, do you want to sit there and wait in an arrangement for five years? 
or if you bankrupt the person, then potentially within two years we can realise these assets and this is what you'll get. So we'll cost, the, we'll do the whole costing exercise and look at the return and say, you know, in an IVA you'd get 10p in the pounds, in a bankruptcy you get 30p in a pound, you know, three mm. years quicker. So we just put that information together, um, love a spreadsheet, <laughs> and then, yeah, creditors decide, really. So obviously behind that, there's lots of valuations of course, and all yeah. the costings and stuff. But, yeah, broad terms, people are only interested in how they're going to get repaid and when they're going to get repaid. Do you go down physically yourself or are there actually other people who do it for you? In terms of looking at assets? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. In so both scenarios, I guess, like... Would you get to see the £100,000 car that has been sold for grand? <laughs> I'd usually see a photo from an agent in, in that respect. Um, to, however, tomorrow, so I should be appointed tomorrow for two uh, large developments in Liverpool. So I will go um, and see those myself um, because it's far easier to visualise something yeah. that, that you've seen. If it's a lower, alley, um, lower value asset that typically we're going to be putting into auction, for example, I will just speak to the valuers and look at the, the photographs and, and go on their recommendations. So a combination of both, really. I don't attend bankrupt's houses <laughs> and sort of go in, albeit there is some advantage to that if they've got, you know, a, a, a wonderful... Um, Picasso hanging on the wall you know you wouldn't necessarily get to know about that yeah. it's not the kind of yeah. thing they'd disclose in their their questionnaires I think people did used to do that um you know kind of historically but we now semi rely on they what they put in questionnaires and their their interviews with yeah. the official receiver and things like that do you have I guess in that scenario where you might go down and you said you kind of take someone with you is there a team to just yeah, so in, in terms of our team, we've got uh, our team's actually split into um, an individual team and a corporate team. Um, and within the corporate team sits, well, the standalone team, I guess, of real estate team. So um, because within our team, we've got people that like all, all sorts of different jobs. So it usually helps to put the ones that like real estate in the real estate team because they tend to be more interested. But yeah, my real estate team is is an all female team actually. No, yeah. no reason for that. This but, is my first um, all female podcast. I yeah, should know. Right. There we go. <laughs> We're on a, a women theme this week with the Euros. But yeah, so yeah, uh, you know they they know what they're doing. They enjoy the work. Mm -hmm. um, and if if they're going out without me, then they'll always be accompanied by an agent or yeah. you know management agent or whoever's appropriate. Um, lawyers tend to stay behind their desks and <laughs> don't don't get involved with site visits, but other professionals, obviously the valuers, yeah. etc., will do so. Um, question number four is actually what happens when a receiver is appointed over property, um, and that was kind of to go briefly through the steps again, just for the sake of the question. And I've got a couple others as well. Yeah, so in, in terms of the steps, so it literally is letter of demand to the borrower, no repayment. Then deed of appointment is signed. That's usually drafted by um, the lawyers. It will be signed by um, the lender. Mm. And then as soon as I sign it, that's effectively when the appointment starts. So at that minute, then we get on the phone to the insurers, get our open cover in place to ensure, um, ensure that <laughs> the property is insured. Um, and then we'll um, look to secure it, get the agents there as soon as possible, get the recommendations going. Obviously, liaise with the borrower. Um, see whether or not they've got any um, thoughts about refinance or mm -hmm. whether it is just a they will work with you but appreciate that the asset's got to be sold there is no other option for us um, and then sell it realize <laughs> and pay out pay out and you said that you mentioned the lawyers so how is how do receivers work with lawyers who work with borrowers who work with 
lenders, does everyone have their own lawyer? Would a borrower have a lawyer in this scenario as well? Yeah, they can do. I mean, TAB have our panel of lawyers and they would do the instruction to the receivers and retain that instruction until we've been repaid. And yeah. do receivers have lawyers? Yep. So uh, depending on the lender as well um, and also the lawyer, if um, sometimes the lender's same solicitors will act for me, but that's down to them as a question of conflict or not. If they're not conflicted, then um, they will do both. The one bit that they won't do if the security is drafted by, say, a, a tab lawyer, then that the appointment document will be looked at by a different lawyer because otherwise you'd be effectively reviewing your own security, <laughs> which doesn't really give you the independence that you need. We don't want invalid appointments. <laughs> it's the last thing anyone needs. And I guess that, you know, you could be talk talking to several different people at one time in that case, then is everyone, do, do, would we need to be involved at every step to know what's going on or just our lawyers? Um, I just think generally we are involved at every step just so that I, the receivers are looking at it from their point of view. We're looking at, at the point of view of the lender and the lawyers are looking at the legality of everything. So we've got a great team and uh, we communicate quite regularly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we're always looking at it. Yeah, I think that, you know, in terms of the lawyers, there is a lot of, um, you know, legal involvement, not only at that outset looking and ensuring the appointment is valid, mm. it's then, you know, sort of, uh, do we need counsel's opinion? And it, it can go out, to, you know, as far as that. A lot of lenders that I work with do have their own in-house legal mm -hmm. as well. So sometimes you can have in-house legal, um, the lender's lawyers and our lawyers. Um, and obviously they'll always be engaged in, in terms of conveyancing as well if there is a sale at, at the end and there hasn't been a a refinance so that would usually be the the same um law firm um it's certainly acting for us that would look at our appointment mm. and do the conveyancing i actually thought the receiver was also a lawyer so i was like oh oh well i trained <laughs> i i did actually do a law degree law. and i did my uh, legal well, practice course but i decided that lawyers work too hard <laughs> so i opted to become an ip I, i'm not sure whether or not, in fact, that's true. I think you do longer longer hours than me sometimes, but I think the, the stress and liability and, and responsibility that an IP and receiver has can cause probably just as many sleepless nights. <laughs> well, it does take us into question number five, which is how did you get into becoming a receiver? Uh, so, uh, as I said, I, I did a law degree. I think the reason I did that, I quite just enjoyed uh, crime dramas when I was young, <laughs> you know, like everyone who inspired we yeah, <laughs> by someone. I still watch them today. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll do a law degree. You know, it always interested me. But then I did my legal practice course. I think at, at that point I decided I didn't want to become a lawyer, but my parents were willing to pay for it. So <laughs> as long as I got a job that involved an element of the law, otherwise I'd have to get a loan and repay it. Uh, that, that was a stipulation. So I did my legal practice course. And on that, um, I did real estate was um, one of my chosen options. But also I did um, an insolvency um, section. And uh, I'd never really come across it before. And it was the time that uh, Ian Bill was being made bankrupt on um, <laughs> EastEnders. And it, I mean, there was so much confusion then, even I think on the barrister's part, in, in when she was lecturing as to who's a bailiff, what's a bankrupt, you know, terminology used by, you know, them, et cetera. But I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So their job is to go around and like sell people's assets. And, I, you know, it, it kind of stimulated some interest, I guess. Um, and then I saw the, the job advertised i mean back then you couldn't really google you know <laughs> i had no idea who was involved in the firm or anything like that but that became my my trainee um 
insolvency role, I guess. So that was 21 years ago. Uh, my boss then, who still is my head of department today, albeit in a different firm, um, was a receiver. Mm -hmm. He acted for one of the, the main sort of property finance banks at, at that point. And so I just got involved and started assisting him. Then subsequently I had a lot of friends who were property developers and in property finance. So it was just kind of quite a natural thing to, to get into. And it certainly is where my, my passion lies in terms mm -hmm. of the job, anything real estate orientated and I think because I probably do bang on about that quite a lot it, it <laughs> means that I do end up doing more of that type of work. Did you find having studied law helped you in this role or like definitely you yeah you yeah. don't while you don't need to be officially qualified it certainly gets yeah, you. Yeah I mean it, it helps in both senses of being a receiver and an insolvency practitioner because as an IP I'm continually reviewing witness statements and obviously signing them off. And obviously mm -hmm. the, the key to uh, is to ensure that you understand the witness statement, uh, particularly as it's been drafted by someone other than you. Um, so that's really helpful. And obviously on the, the receivership side, just you know reviewing all of the, the documents. Again, I'm forever signing TR1s <laughs> and transfer documents, restriction documents. So uh, understanding what I'm getting myself into um, and you know, challenging lawyers um, <laughs> is, is useful. So you can challenge lawyers. Yeah, I think when I first started out, I, yeah. I didn't challenge anyone because, like everyone, when you're younger, you kind of you know you don't know and you, you expect everyone else to know everything and you to know nothing. But I ask a lot of questions now. Good. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I guess yeah, we kind of touched on most unusual complex cases you've worked on. What other cases beyond property finance did you look at? You mentioned yeah well everything haven't you yeah I, so in terms is of there anything you wouldn't look at i'm gonna say no but <laughs> <laughs> i think i mean we we do look at everything and anything we've had some really weird and wonderful um assignments particularly within probably on the insolvency side the world of retail We've had bar bridal shops, for example, that have gone into a process. How, does that, how long would that work? I mean, it's an absolute nightmare because obviously you've 400 got weddings who are, <laughs> have paid deposits are expecting oh, dresses yeah. to be, um, you know, delivered, finished, fittings, and there's just, uh, yeah, bridezillas are, are not the easiest of places <laughs> to deal with. Um, so that, that was particularly challenging for the people in my team involved <laughs> in that. Oh, we've had... Uh, sex toys all sorts of um <laughs> things yes yeah. so there's kind of not much that we won't we won't look at really and sometimes when you take on an engagement you just don't know what's going to be there yeah. so by default you end up um but if we end up with sort of onerous assets again we've got within i mean we've got such wide powers as insolvency practitioners so we've got the ability to disclaim those mm -hmm. get rid of them straight away so anything that we don't want to be involved with um we can pretty much get out of that because obviously I don't want to be lumbered dealing with um you know asbestos and, and all sorts yeah. of you know things like that what's the best piece of advice you could give for a defaulting borrower uh communication don't ignore pick up the phone to the lender frustration just builds more frustration I think that's what I see day in day out okay. I had another question I don't know if you want to ask it but you um can you touch on the point of why do you not need to get a possession order to take control of the property? Yep. So if I'm appointed as a receiver and it, the property is empty, for example, then I can just sell it. Um, if 
the property is tenanted so uh, you know as i mentioned earlier then we do need to go down that possession road so the difference is if it's an empty property no possession order is needed and if it is then we have to get them out and that's whether it's you know sometimes you'll find a, a borrower has actually decided to live in there despite <laughs> the fact that the yeah, terms of the loan don't allow them to um, and more often than not on those occasions we would still need to get possession as well. And a possession order you'd need to go, you'd need lawyers to draft draft that, get it signed off and then you'd go in. How long did the tenants have to leave in that, or does it just vary? Yeah, I mean, so uh, the eviction I did last week, they all get two weeks notice, um, but we would have been in contact with them many times before that. Um, so they will get notice mm -hmm. of the hearings. So it, months, really. Um, but the amount, including the ones last week who claimed not to have received any notice, not to have received any letters, um, you know, to, to the point of trying to frustrate the eviction. Um, it's yeah, it happens yeah. quite a lot. It's quite common, but plenty of plenty of notice, and we do have obviously as well vulnerable um, tenants that might be in properties mm -hmm. um, through no fault of their own. They're going to be subject to eviction proceedings, so we have to be you know obviously even more careful there. And we work with them and councils um, in order to you know sort of place them because technically they will be deemed homeless yeah. on eviction. What about? the scenario if you had that student block and it had been term time because I mean when I was at uni that I was in a student halls of thousands of people I would I don't even know what we would have done if we'd got evicted but would is would that be wait till kind of term time's over or yeah and I mean it, depending on we we have had quite a bit of sort of student accommodation actually some of the uh ones that have just been appointed over are but they are empty at the moment um, but it depends if it's an administration because, you know, we would be looking to potentially continue that. We'd work with mm -hmm. the university, um, obviously, and, and try and understand their position. But, yeah, you'd like to think in that scenario <laughs> the uh, the students wouldn't be uh, <laughs> no, turned out. out. Oh, that's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, any more questions, Mother? Um No. No. Thank you very much for joining Thank me you today. For joining yeah, us. Thank that was you. really interesting. I mean, I mean um, you know, more than you'd ever want to know. About yeah, well, I now. think that's part. Of, you know, I'm ready now. Ready, <laughs> ready if, it ever, if the time ever comes <laughs> to be a receiver. <laughs> well, of yeah, course, to be go. a receiver. Uh, but hopefully, never. Um, not on. I wouldn't mind being a receiver. It sounds quite fun. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. And You're thank you, Mother. Thank you. And thanks everyone for joining. And where can we find you should someone need a receiver? I'm on LinkedIn, so yeah, Georgina Eason at McIntyre Hudson should bring me up, or obviously on our firm's website as well. Perfect. I'll put it all in the show notes. Uh, that's been Tabu Receiver Podcast. I will see you next time. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share, and comment. See you next time. Bye. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you.